Good morning, and welcome to your Friday Five, a weekly newscast from the Boston University News Service. It's November 15th, 2019. I'm Susanna Sudborough. And I'm Hannah Harn. Today we'll take a look at our top stories this week, including the rising costs of naloxone, a proposal for a new memorial at the State House, and a look at Ben Shapiro's Wednesday visit. Let's get started so you can start your day. While naloxone effectively reverses the effects of an opioid overdose, medical experts said the rising price of one form of the drug may limit overall access to the life-saving medicine. Opioid overdoses remain common throughout Massachusetts, and in Franklin County, the number of prescriptions for Narcan ranks fourth highest among counties nationwide. In Massachusetts, naloxone is most commonly administered to people with an opioid overdose using a nasal spray known as Narcan. There is also an auto-injector option, though less common, that can be used to bring people back to life. Kaleo, the company that manufactures the auto-injector from naloxone, has been selling Evzio for over $4,000 per dose this past year, a dramatic increase from its initial price of $575 in 2014. Naloxone is critical from a public health standpoint. Last year, the Department of Public Health reported 1,617 confirmed opioid-related overdose deaths. Moreover, Someone who appears to have overdosed and is given naloxone by mistake will not suffer any harmful consequences. A new generic form of naloxone may also affect the price. After finally receiving approval from the FDA in April, Teva Pharmaceuticals should start selling its naloxone spray over-the-counter soon. This is expected to be significantly cheaper than brand names like Narcan and Evzio. This story was contributed by Noor Adatia. A jury ruled in favor of Peabody Police in federal court Tuesday following a five-day trial on whether police used excessive force on a then-teenager during an arrest that attorneys said gave the man a traumatic brain injury, resulting in seizures following the incident. We're very happy with this verdict, defense attorney Stephen Pfaff said with a wink after four and a half hours of jury deliberations. The civil suit stemmed from a fight during the arrest of then-16-year-old Tyler Ligobrowski by Peabody police officers David McGovern and Antonio Santos in March of 2015. Ligobrowski claimed officers assaulted him during the arrest in a McDonald's bathroom, leaving him with a traumatic brain injury resulting in seizures. What they've done is wrong. He could have died in that cell if I didn't ask them to take him to the hospital, Melissa Faulkner, Ligobrowski's mother, said Tuesday after the verdict. It's been a long road. I will continue to fight for justice, but just with other means. I will continue to stand up and advocate and continue on as a family and be stronger. During closing arguments, the family's lawyers focused on the inconsistencies in the testimonies of the officers involved in the suit. The prosecution raised questions about a police report altered by McGovern the day after the arrest and the fact that none of the police officers present for the arrest tried to secure camera footage from the restaurant or speak to any witnesses. This story was contributed by Chris O'Brien. Young women visiting the Massachusetts State House may soon find a new female hero among the halls of male historical figures. Noticing a dearth of women's history displayed in their workplace, Representative David Vieira and Representative Linda Dean Campbell filed legislation to begin developing a memorial for Revolutionary War soldier Deborah Sampson, a Plimpton resident who disguised herself as a man to fight with the Patriots in 1782 in a small Uxbridge militia. The bill, which currently sits before the House Ways and Means Committee, would establish a 15-member commission of state senators, representatives, and female veterans to make initial recommendations for the memorial. 
Clearly, the existing portrayal of history is male-dominant, Vieira said. There's no question of that. This is one step toward expanding that history and that story with the richness of the diversity we have in Massachusetts. Sampson, who was born in 1760, assumed the moniker of Robert Shirtliff and joined the 4th Massachusetts Regiment, according to the Massachusetts Historical Society. She enlisted in Uxbridge and later assembled with her unit in Worcester. While stationed in New York, Sampson scouted out neutral territory around Manhattan, dug trenches at the Siege of Yorktown, and led a raid on a home of British loyalists that resulted in the capture of 15 men. At one point, Sampson was shot in the left thigh and extracted the bullet herself to avoid detection. She became the first woman to earn a full military pension from the state for her service. Sampson died of yellow fever on April 29, 1827. More than a century later, in 1982, the Massachusetts legislature declared May 23rd Deborah Sampson Day. This story was contributed by Hannah Schoenbaum. Election campaigning can be expensive. In Boston's 2019 city council elections, the 13 candidates who won on November 5th spent a total of around $1.7 million since the beginning of the year, according to the Massachusetts Office of Campaign and Political Finance data. With donations worth about $1.7 million spread among 13 elected candidates, one could buy three houses in Boston at the median price of $640,000 with the donations. Councilor-at-large incumbent candidate Michael F. Flaherty received the most donations and also spent the most, followed in both categories by another councilor-at-large incumbent, Michelle Wu. While Flaherty amassed donations worth $326,248, Wu received $287,135. Wu, who received the most votes in this election cycle, also had the highest number of contributions. She received around 1,400 contributions and was followed by District 8 candidate, now Councilor-elect, Priscilla Kenzie-Bach, who received 1,006. The candidates received donations from 8,786 sources, most of which were listed as coming from individuals. Most of the donations were spent on printing and campaign consultancy, where 5 out of 13 candidates used the same printing company. This story was contributed by Devyani Chetri for our weekly Wonder Data Journalism series. An appearance by conservative commentator Ben Shapiro brought hundreds of students from Greater Boston into below-freezing weather Wednesday night to denounce what many called fascist, racist, and intolerant speech being supported by Boston University on its own campus. Recent graduates and current students from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Boston University, Boston College, and several other nearby schools participated in open mic soliloquies or stood silently in solidarity outside BU's Track and Tennis Center in West Campus to protest Shapiro's speech and the university's decision to foot the security costs for the event, estimated at $13,000. Less than three hours after BU announced the location of Shapiro's speech, 133 students, dubbed Black BU, began to circulate a three-page statement across social media denouncing Shapiro's planned arrival and declaring that BU was not designed for marginalized students. We demand to be heard, to be listened to, and to finally be acknowledged as our own advocates, the statement said. To the administration, know that our eyes are wide open. We see you and know that your actions do not go unwatched. While students participating in Black BU's silent protest stood by, 
BU Against Hate Speech organized several speakers and rallied young adults with chants, signs, and free hot chocolate. Twenty minutes after Shapiro's speech was scheduled to begin, nearly a dozen students walked out of the venue, chanting encouragement to the protesters. Several of them made their way to the open mic session and told the crowd about what they had heard on the inside. Marco Della Forcade, a junior studying political science and chemistry and a member of BU Against Hate Speech, said Shapiro identified a BU Against Hate Speech member by name. We now fear for that person's safety, Della Forcade said. According to Della Forcade, Diana Soriano, president of the Young Americans for Freedom, called the protesters brainwashed. We are out here tonight fighting for human rights, Della Forcade argued. This story was contributed by Sabrina Schnur. For the rest of our coverage of Ben Shapiro's visit to campus, visit bunewsservice.com slash podcasts and click on today's episode. And that's it for your Friday Five. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next week. For the full versions of this week's stories, visit bunewsservice.com slash podcasts and click on today's episode. We'd like to thank today's contributing writers, Noor Adatia, Chris O'Brien, Hannah Schoenbaum, Devyani Chitri, and Sabrina Schnur, as well as our production team. This week's episode of Friday Five was produced by Hannah Harn. And be sure to check out our latest episode of Between the Bylines, where we sit down with our contributors to discuss our top stories through the lens of student journalism. Visit us at bunewsservice.com slash podcast for more information. Mm-hmm.